everyone is born with equal access to genius. I call it the peace mind. It is the highest part of ourselves. What does it look like when everybody steps forward with the fruits of their own genius to share? Today, I'm speaking with Mandy Kahn. Mandy is the author of several collections of poetry and opera librettist, and she's also a peace advocate. But more than an advocate, she's a guide, a Sherpa towards peace, and a much-needed human soul-to-human-soul translator who shows others how to feel the power of peace and what it can do for our communities and for the world. This form of perception, being invited by the highest parts of ourselves to see and feel something unseen, is a form of meditation for Mandy, and she's using this practice to change the world. Welcome to Living Untitled. You do so many things, so many wonderful, wonderful things. And so I just kind of want to understand from you how you would describe yourself and how you would describe all of these beautiful things that you're doing as just the the, the work that you're trying to create. I started speaking in poetry pretty much as soon as I could speak. So my grandmother used to take care of me in the afternoons when I was really young, and she used to read me Mother Goose, you know, and all this rhymed poetry. And almost as soon as I could speak, I was speaking in the conventional way and I was speaking in rhyme and I just loved it. And in fact, my parents still have letters that I wrote back from sleepaway camp when I was six, seven, eight years old. And there were there were always poems in those letters. So poetry is in many ways my most natural language. And To be a poet was always my dream career, but I also didn't know if it was possible. So the first part of my life was really a process of discovery of whether it was possible or, or really what I was here to do with a kind of openness. The end of 2018 rolled around, and at that time, my second book of poetry was out. I had a year worth of a reading scheduled from that book, and I was deep into the writing of my third book of poems. And at that time, I just started to perceive certain information about peace and how to bring about a kind of sustained peace. And it was sort of an unexpected thing to happen in my life. I'm an intuitive, I'm a mystic. My process of writing poetry is very much a spiritual process for me. It's a spiritual practice for me. And I had already spent years sort of getting to know the difference between my higher mind, my intuitive mind, my lower mind, really getting to know all aspects of my consciousness, and really learning how to become open and clear so that I could receive guidance from the wisest and highest part of myself. And when I started to be able to perceive this peace information, I would just have these moments of ecstatic connection in which I could suddenly see something with clarity. And then I would just run to my computer and type it out. And after months of this, it became very clear to me that I was being invited because when when something comes to us from the higher part of ourselves, it's always an invitation. We are here to discover what we incarnated to do, but it's always an option. It's an always an opportunity. And I felt this incredibly strong invitation to start sharing the peace material. I also felt an unbelievable shyness about the idea of that. 
And I went into a deep meditation and I sort of asked the question, well, if this is an aspect of what I'm here to do, should I go get a graduate degree in this? There are graduate programs in this. And I was shown very clearly that what would benefit this work the most was simply openness, a truly open mind into which understanding, comprehensive understanding could arrive. And that that was a bigger benefit to me than understanding what had been said, because it might be challenging for me if I saw that some of what I saw was in line with and and maybe some of it was new or different. So I was willing to do that to keep this beginner's mind. And I started to When I felt that invitation to begin sharing the piece material, I already had all of these events scheduled as a poet. And so I started to share little bits about peace between the poems at these events that I was already scheduled to be at. So I'd read a poem, talk a little bit about peace, read a poem, talk a little bit about peace. And these audiences were expecting poetry, but they weren't expecting the peace part of things. And it It went surprisingly well until the peace information was just expanding. It was becoming a bigger part of my life, a bigger part of my day. So I started a series of concerts at the Philosophical Research Society. I was the artist in residence there. I'm I'm still in residence there. It's been about four years that I've been there. And I started a series of concerts that were peace concerts. And I would talk a little bit about the nature of peace. I would share new poems. I also make these interactive works of literature called immersive poems. So I would build these peace-building immersive poems, read poems in the traditional way, you know, at a lectern. And then there would be musical guests, artist guests, you know, sometimes visiting lectures. And it all focused on building peace communally getting us into the heightened peace state in community. How do you teach peace? One thing that has been such a joy for me to discover about peace is that it's this incredibly practical, applied resource. And it's it's interesting because often when we think about peace, it, you know, sort of the what I think of as the old version of understanding peace, it was this sort of airy, fairy, floaty, not really well-defined, maybe a state that we sometimes feel, but how do we get more of it? We don't really know. As I work more closely with peace, this set of practices that make it so easy and so accessible to engage more of it arrive one by one by one in, in the zone of my perception, and I start to teach them. Just an example of one of the simplest ones that I started teaching the first year is that, you know, Peace is an incredibly powerful thing. When we bring in just a few more increments of peace, a few more moments of peace into our individual experience, they expand. We can advance in our own experience of peacefulness by increments of 10 more seconds a day and then 20 more seconds a day because peace is so powerful, so much more powerful than absence of peace or the opposite of peace. It has this incredible generative quality. So a really easy way to experience a little bit more peace is to watch for these moments of peace that arrive naturally and organically in our lives. Like I always think about when I'm doing the dishes and I'll get really engaged in the feeling of the hot water and maybe I'll 
uh, see some beautiful iridescence in the soap that I'm using, and I'll enter this totally organic and unplanned moment of peace. Now, at that moment, if I were to let my thoughts flow onto the next thing, that might be a lovely two-second experience. But we can linger in those natural and organic moments of peace, and we can widen them. If I choose to stay in that moment, stay in the feeling instead of introducing a new thought, simply lingering in it, understanding its incredible value, not only in my life, but in the world, I might turn that into a 30-second experience or a two-minute long experience, which is such an easy way to begin to widen out the peace that I experience and also that I contribute. We have an individual consciousness, but we are also part of a collective consciousness. What we put in our individual consciousness, we flow all day, every day into the collective consciousness. When we choose to increase the peace that we experience in our own consciousness, even just a little bit, we not only put those additional increments of peace into ourselves. We flow them into the collective consciousness where they have this incredibly healing quality. They are so much more powerful than that which is not peace that they have this very healing effect on the collective consciousness. So that's a really easy way that we can build a little bit more peace. But again, there are so many of these techniques that I teach and and what I love is demystifying this idea that it's it's hard to achieve it or it's this distant thing or it's for other people. It's practical. It's a practical tool that can simply be included in our day. So I'll, I'll introduce the concept of the peace mind. So each one of us, if you can imagine your consciousness as a thing with levels. So imagine your consciousness as a building with, say, 20 stories. You are you, whether you are based in the basement of your own consciousness, a windowless basement, or whether you are up in the penthouse of your consciousness, full of floor-to-ceiling windows and balconies streaming with light. You are you, whether you are experiencing the world from the lower part of your consciousness or the highest part of your consciousness. I call the highest part of your consciousness your peace mind. The advantage of gazing at the world from the place of your peace mind is that it's the place not just of the experience of peace. It's the place of compassion without end, compassion for all aspects of yourself and compassion for all beings. When we are in that state Belligerence simply does not begin. We don't need to put out the fires of belligerence among people who are in their peace mind because belligerence does not begin for them. Because what is there when they are in the peace mind is the honoring of all beings, the deep appreciation for the self. It is a place of harmony among parts of the self and among people. Conveniently, it's also the place of innovation. It's the place of genius. It's the place of intuition. It's the place of clarity of mind. It's the place in which we see clearly. When we are at the top of our own consciousness, we are in the place of flow between our highest self, the part of us that has so much more information because we are part of the universe. We are part of source. We carry a divine spark. And there is an aspect of us that has this 
flowing access to all of this extra information. We, it's easy for us to make decisions because it's easy for us to see clearly. The peace mind is the place of, of clarity because it's the place of knowledge. It's the place of wisdom. It's the place of information. Again, it's the place of, of genius. So when we spend more time in the peace mind as individuals, it is the place of what the lower mind would call solutions. The lower mind is the place of feeling like there's a problem and I don't know how to solve it and I'm trying to figure it out, but I don't know which step forward or which direction is the right direction. The peace mind is the place of clarity. You can just see it. That is the direction. The natural step is in that direction. All of what we think of when we're in the lower mind or the lower aspects of the mind as unsolvable societal problems, when we slide up into the peace mind, we can simply see, oh, well, actually, there is a solution. When we are in the higher part of ourselves, we are in the place of our own innovation without end, our own genius without end. So not only can we move out of a place of stuckness or challenge in our own personal lives, but it works as a society as well. Suddenly, these issues that have been plaguing our society for hundreds of years, someone begins to receive new, innovative solutions to those issues just because they're spending more time in their own peace mind and simply because everyone has access to their own genius. It's just that the tendency in our society is to be pretty weighed down in the lower I'd say third of our consciousness. Part of what I teach in peace class is techniques to slide up to the higher parts of our consciousness. It makes our own lives, day-to-day -day lives, a lot easier, but that's when we begin to see true reconciliation. Things that we said could never happen before, like those parts of the world where they have been fighting nonstop war for hundreds of years, that's when we begin to see ways out of what had felt unsolvable in the past. So when we as individuals choose to set an intention to bring more peace into our experience and, and more peace into the collective, when we do that, we are beginning to heal the collective consciousness and we're making it easier for everyone to slide up into their own peace mind, to access their own individual innovation and genius, which is also the innovation and genius for the collective. We have everything that we need to glide from what I call the era of belligerence into the age of peace. It arrived in the form, in the shape of all the people that are here. The innovations are here, but they are in a higher perspective of everyone's consciousness. When we choose to slide up into the loving and compassionate part of our own consciousness, we make it easier for everybody else to do so, and we also model it for others. It's almost like Mandy sit here in front of the UN today <laughs> and say peace is possible. Like, what would you say in that moment? <laughs> World peace is not only possible, it's inevitable. It's the forward station in the evolution of every collective, including our collective. But we get to choose how quickly it happens. And we get to choose whether it happens in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, 
or not. We will get there because that is the forward of our evolution, but it can take a really, really long time. A central recentering that can help us to get there more quickly is an understanding that our true nature, our deepest and most constant and consistent nature is a loving and peaceful nature. That's who we truly are. All else that we experience about ourselves is part of a learning. We learn when we act in other ways. We learn from that. And eventually, the trajectory of our learning as people is in the direction of a discovery of our own peaceful and loving true nature. We've been in a very interesting situation because we've been in the era of belligerence for a really long time. And so we have looked at what we've experienced, what our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents experienced. We've been in this nonstop war to war to war for so long that we have looked at the way that we have acted and said, that must be our nature. That must be our true nature. Belligerence, cruelty, hurting another must be our truest nature because that's what we have a record of. It is a marker. Our belligerence is a marker of a developmental phase, but it is not inherent to us. So when we have a baby, eventually that baby turns two years old. And when that baby turns two, we start to see a brief developmental phase that we call the terrible twos. That baby will throw fits, get frustrated, pound its fists on the ground. But eventually, that baby becomes four, five, 10, 12, learns to use its words, You learns to communicate what it needs, learns to negotiate, learns more about itself. It is natural for that two-year-old to go through a brief phase that we call the terrible twos. But what is inherent about that child is not what we see in that brief phase. Quickly, that child learns that it prefers to communicate in ways that allow it to retain its equilibrium. We have been caught in our terrible twos of our development as a humanity for a long time. We have been in generation after generation of this continued belligerence. And so we have gotten confused. We've looked at our own terrible twos and said, this is who we are. It's not who we are. It's the developmental phase that we have gotten stuck in because it's been a cycle that has been self-perpetuating. But it's actually organic and natural to step out of that phase. What is unnatural is to be in this one developmental phase for so long. A, a child doesn't stay in the terrible twos for, for very long, maybe six months, they will go through that developmental phase. Everything in that child is pulling them forward to the next phase of its own development. So it is with us. Everything in us is pulling us forward into an experience of. And, and an expression of our peaceful and loving true nature. So stepping out of the era of belligerence, it's going to happen. But we can decide if we want to stay in it for more generations, if we want to keep feeling stuck, or whether we want to gift to ourselves, to each other, to everyone, what everyone deserves, which is a, a, a planet of 
safety and and harmony and a world in which everyone feels that there is a place for them. And another beautiful aspect of the peace mind is that when we are in the peace mind, we remember the holiness of the earth and we remember the holiness of the waters of the earth. When we are in the peace mind, we don't need to self-regulate how we treat the earth because we carry such a natural reverence. We don't need to self-regulate how we treat the waters of the earth because we remember what is true, which is that the waters of this earth are holy. They are our lifeblood. They are an an aspect of us. So all that is out of alignment, out of balance in how we are now naturally shifts into balance when we simply spend more time connected to the part of ourselves that knows and does these things effortlessly. I can hear the poet (laughs) coming out in the way that you speak. (laughs) What is the modern role of a poet in society? The role that I have always felt called to And I think the poets that I've always loved the most as a reader are people who tend to take a very, very long view of things or or look at our society from this distant perspective. Political figures or, you know, people who are just trying to get through the day or the week, they tend to be very focused on what's happening right now. But There are some of us for whom it is natural to look at our own lives, our own moment in history from this distant perspective. That's growing up as a reader of poetry. Those were always the poems that I loved the most. The poets that I loved the most had that kind of perspective. And that's something that I love to do with a poem is to sort of put what I experience, whether it's within my own life or within this moment in history, put it in this greater context so that sometimes it's easier to see the path forward when we have more perspective. And to your point about a lot of great poets and the poetry that I'm always drawn to, it's often the work of a poet that is commenting on or looking at a moment of history and putting language around it that encapsulates its meaning, often with the elegance and, you know, the beauty, the sort of rich language that you'd imagine any great poet certainly uses in a way that is, it, it's a pure reflection of what humanity truly feels like or was at that moment in time. And to me, that is such a powerful thing. And I even think about it in some of the books that I read now, like, for example, You know, I love uh, the work of like uh, Isabel Wilkerson, for example, just because it's like talking about these deep, challenging issues that we have with like race and our sort of human experience and progress and the caste systems that, you know, have been still sadly are with us today in so many ways. But like a, a, a beautiful writer like that. And historian in many ways will then open up a a new chapter in a book with like a beautiful poem that just sort of provides all of that rich context that you need to really deepen your relationship with that moment in time that maybe is distant for me, but now I can really truly grasp in a way that I don't know if you can without that, without language like that. Well, for me, the process of writing a poem is also a process of 
of spiritual connection. So I I often begin a poem at the place of a curiosity or a question or a reflection. And the process of writing the poem for me is a process of not just discovery, but elevation. And I know the poem is over when I've reached a moment of kind of ecstatic experience or almost divine presence. And when I've reached that moment of of clarity, that's when I know the poem is done. So for me, a collection of my poems is often a record of my own process of climbing that ladder from the question, from the experience of the everyday up into this moment in which I feel connected and I have clarity. Can we hear some of your work? Oh my gosh, I would love it. I would love it. I thought I'd start with this poem because it's, it starts in such a grounded way. So I grew up here in Los Angeles. As a child, I was often taken to the horse races because my stepdad loved horse races. And this poem starts with me as a young child being taken to the horse races. And from there, you'll see it incorporates the other themes of my life. A long shot in spring. This one's for my stepdad, Norm, who started me betting the long shots in spring. We dressed for the races back then. I wore curls and a skirt with lace edging and black shoes that buckled and clacked, and sometimes pink tights and a hat. I loved betting long shots, was happy with losing some contests, then my twenty to one would come in, and I'd spread out my winnings, stacking and fanning my loot, unfolding the dog ears and flattening creases until I knew each bill by touch. I loved betting long shots in spring. I'd stand at the teller, age six, and collect what I'd earned. My sisters thought it was luck. There's more. I wasn't too timid to lose. I'm still not. Look at this odd long shot of a life. I live in perpetual spring. My hair is straight, uncombed, just like a girl's hair, though I am grown. And still I have a girl's clear-sightedness, unwavering will. The years haven't broken me, a thoroughbred bought by a farm. They've preserved me like an ether, an oil, girlhood stilled in its dreaming, its faith. What am I betting on now? World peace. Let them guffaw in the stands. Let all the chattering jockeys make jest in the stables. It's May in my rooms. Call it a thousand to one if you want, my dream, that we will choose to live from love, that I will live to see that choice. Here's what I've learned. Sometimes your spring horse comes in, whom no one else bet on. Your fire in the moonlight, your fairies call, your tall, auspicious lady, your cherries in dew. Look at that child, counting and folding the bills they said had come from luck. Not luck or God or patience, no, belief. 
<laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Some people were born with the stomach to lose. I was born with that. You know, it's interesting because I don't know anything about business. I'm not in business, but my brother is really into business and he's always, you know, recommending a, a book where he's, oh, you should read this new business guru book. And something that I've noticed about the books that he recommends to me is often it's a person that, you know, failed five times and then it was their sixth idea that caught. Well, that's something that that I learned as a child that I have a stomach for. And I also have the stomach for a bunch of people looking at me and saying, ha ha, that's ridiculous. Um, that's so silly. That's I have the stomach for that. Let people say what they will. Um, I'm not afraid. I'm not even afraid to get to the end of the life, to get to the end of my life. You know, a life spent working every day towards what I believe in and what I know is possible and what I love is a life well spent. I'm I'm not even looking for goal achievement or payoff. I am here to spend every day doing this because it's what I love and it's what I want to love into being and and because I know it's what everyone deserves. Part of what's so beautiful about a peaceful society is that it is a place of flowing creativity. It's a place in which people discover the highest levels of what they are here to share because they're not spending most of their time, you know, protecting themselves from the flying arrows of the world. They have room, they have opportunity to self explore, self-discover, and to share what our society looks like when we get to see everybody's gifts shared openly. It is truly a place of flowing creativity. Again, everyone is born with equal access to genius. I call it the peace mind. It is the highest part of ourselves. What does it look like when everybody steps forward with the fruits of their own genius to share? That which feels like an unsolvable issue now is completely solvable when everyone is access the, accessing the part of themselves that simply allows their gift to be shared. So whatever happens, I am happy to give every day of my life working towards that. Um, to me, it is the day-to-day -day that is the big payoff. I want to hear one more, if we can. <laughs> I do not fear death, yet go on living. I do not fear death, yet go on living. I know choirs wait for me to finish. Wait to paint this clear air with their singing. Wait in gauzy figures just past seeing. I know what will greet me is more vibrant than a field of poppies in the morning, widening their petals for the daylight. I know what is waiting past my seeing, know its luster, still I go on living, chopping, boiling, eating, scrubbing, sweeping, writing sonnets seen by just my ceiling, stacking up old bills, paying, not paying, then a bath, a walk, and it is evening. Choirs wait to stir the air with feeling. 
angels wait to steer me towards a drawbridge made of lighted crystal. I keep living. Oh, I love it so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I wanted to share that poem because I think it brings in one of the themes of this poetry collection and also one of the themes of my life, which mm. is this negotiating between the ethers and the ground, the yes. seen and the unseen. What is it to spend much of our time in the in the highest part of our being and also to spend much of our time in the chopping and scrubbing of the daily life. That is what I negotiate every day. And so that theme comes into, into my poetry quite a lot. Mm. And it ties together so much of what we've talked about in this conversation. As you said, you know, even when you think about practicing peace and you mentioned the example of you can find peace in this moment as you're doing the dishes or whatever that is, the negotiating of the, you know, doing the little everyday things that you can still contribute something more meaningful into and then see the end result of that in a much bigger way as well over time. That's right. Mandy, thank you. This was such a fun conversation. Oh, this was a such a joy for me. I'm so grateful that I got to spend this time with you. Same. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.